There's an older American cops and robbers movie, as we call them, uh, that began and ended with the tagline, a man's got to know his limitations. And the point there was that specific people can only do so much, and if we try to cross over that capacity, we end up in really severe trouble. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 to 25, Paul made a similar point about human abilities. He indicated that humanly devised methods, even for trying to advance God's purposes, are useless and empty. In other words, the things that we invent to further the gospel actually end up limiting the gospel's success if we do them according to our wisdom. People must know their limitations when it comes to promoting the gospel truth, especially when it comes to seeing people saved. What we so desperately long constantly for our family, friends, and neighbors. Our devised approaches, uh, the things that we come up with to do this for leading people to salvation are empty. But God, thankfully, has promised to make His appointed, commanded tactics powerful to bring people into His kingdom. So we're studying 1 Corinthians, which, which if we remember, Paul wrote to address the, the growing pastoral issues among the congregation in Corinth. In, his, in this epistle, he responded to issues of division, confusion, and error about both doctrine and ethic in the Christian life that had been developing in this fledgling church that was struggling to stay on track in the midst of a major center of commerce and culture. Which means, of course, in that regard, this letter is clearly relevant for us here in London as we wrestle to be faithful to Christ in a world capital that finds Christianity increasingly at least bizarre. And previously we we saw how Paul argued for a deep Christian unity in verses 10 to 17. And lastly, indicate culminating that section, indicating his priority on preaching the gospel. Not on baptizing, which is still important, but he committed himself to announcing Christ crucified. He preached a straightforward gospel without vain rhetorical flourish or eloquent wisdom so that his purpose in preaching that way was so that the inherent power built into the proclamation of Christ's work would be fully displayed. We see that in verse 17, don't we? For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And then in the following section, which we turn to consider now, Paul gave a rationale for his priority on preaching. So the main point is that although preaching is humanly foolish, God has appointed it as His means to save sinners. Although preaching is humanly foolish, God has appointed it as the means to save sinners. 
And we'll think about this in three points. The promise, the problems, and the preaching. And so first, let's think about the promise. Okay, so it's clear, right, that this passage is about preaching. It's an emphasis of this section. And so this sermon explores why the church should treasure the preaching of God's Word. And, and this point, this first point, establishes that preaching the message of Christ is the church's bread and butter because God has promised to use it. That's the reason. So we should note, as this passage shows, there really is a tension built into the preaching activity. I don't know if you've, you've ever considered this. I think about it a lot. <laughs> so if I were to think about preaching from only a human perspective, and if I forget, which in my fallenness I do, if I forget God's command and His promise about preaching, this seems like such an odd thing. For me to get up here and talk about the background, the grammar, and the ideology of a a two to three and a half thousand year old book doesn't sell well on paper if I think according to a human perspective. And again, when I forget about God's promises about preaching, it's easy to be overwhelmed in this as I prepare and review my sermons. This is where I... I feel my limitations in every respect. I mean, so Reverend Pearson preaches with really deep uh, application and life illustration, but I know that I, it takes me a long time, you're very good to be patient, to get from text to application. And I know that that can be dense. And so I don't feel like I ever have something flashy for you. And I'm really just hoping and praying that it's something useful for you. And it's easy to look at what we might prepare as, as preachers and think that no one could possibly care about any of this if we forget about God's promises. One of the, the top three most influential people in my life is a guy named Scott Clark, uh, who taught me in seminary. And I remember sitting in his office one day, and, and I was telling him that I just didn't feel like, which tells you how much it matters, but just didn't feel like I could do the pastoral task well. And his response has always stuck with me. As he said, you know what you're supposed to do. Simple as that. His point was, this is not about tricks and gimmicks but about doing what God has told us to do. Ministers are called to do what we're told in Scripture, which is to preach the gospel. So even as I'm aware of my limitations, I turn every week, as we all must when we present the gospel, to lean fully on God's promises that He will use the proclamation of His Word to do His work. And we see this point so clearly explained 
in 1 Corinthians 1, 17-25, that God appointed the message of the cross as the means to grow His church in maturity and in number. So we see that in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. So in other words, the world doesn't consider this to be a wise message when we talk about Christ. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul said that he was appointed to preach because even if it seems bizarre and impossible, God uses the proclamation of His Word, the message about the cross, to rescue people from condemnation. Verse 19 further tells us why God chose preaching about Christ's cross as the way that He would save sinners. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. See, God adds His strength to the simple announcement of the message about Christ. Because, because it's not the obvious way to attract people. God saves people through preaching. Because then he gets all the credit. So in this verse, Paul cited Isaiah 29.14. Maybe you picked up on that from the previous reading. So Isaiah 29 is likely, well it definitely was a judgment against Israel. And it likely reflects the events of 2 Kings 18 and 19 where the royal advisors told King Hezekiah to ally with Egypt against Assyria as a way to get Israel's freedom back. Which then Isaiah 30 and 31 explicitly mentions those events, that buddying up to Egypt. And God said in that instance that He's not going to use allegiances with the major world powers to free His people, but He is going to do that work Himself as happens in 2 Kings 19. God does things in unexpected ways that the world would not invent. It's easy to think, well, yeah, if I'm just friends with the most powerful people, that'll get me where I want to be. And God says He's not going to do it that way so that He gets the credit. And He works the same way in the preaching of the gospel. It's kind of like, okay, so so in all the the best spy movies, the the spy has little gadgets hidden in sort of all of his ordinary, everyday belongings. His his pen is like a laser gun, and his watch is a grappling hook, and, and things like that. Uh, I mean, a watch is one of the most ordinary things in life, isn't it? But it could do incredible things if it had a grappling hook hidden inside it. And the point of that is, is that preaching the gospel is kind of like that secret weapon. I mean, it looks so ordinary. It looks so plain, perhaps even looks, looks, 
uninteresting. But God has promised to add his strength to the proclamation of Christ's work. God's power is the hidden power behind preaching. The the message of the cross itself is that extra strength within a simple act. As Paul tells us in Romans 10.17, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing of the Word of Christ. And so the promise is that God has sworn to make preaching about Christ's work effectual to save sinners. And that brings us to our second point. The the problems. Okay, so we saw how how preaching looks like a useless endeavor from a human point of view, from a worldly point of view. Nothing about preaching is flashy. Uh, it is not it's not an obvious method to attract people. It's not over the top. It's not trendy. It's not that fashionable. The world increasingly despises ordinary things, preferring the visually stimulating, fast-paced, and entertaining things. And preachers even are expected to speak in sort of sound bites and, and quips rather than slow building arguments. But those expectations are not really what preaching is. Preaching announces from Scripture who God is and what He's done for us in Christ. So whereas the last point looked at how God promised to use this outwardly unexciting means of of preaching to bring people salvation, this, this point discusses some of the reasons that people could doubt preaching's power and usefulness. And we're going to consider the two problems of excitement and ego. So first, excitement. Okay, so there are just scores of of people, I don't know how many times I've heard this in the last several years, that, that have called traditional models of church irrelevant. I mean, I have years ago attended supposed worship services where where I was called on stage to compete, to pull tissues out of a box faster than another person. And innovations like that happen because people assume that unbelievers and even believers are no longer interested in worship that revolves around prayer singing God-oriented praise, and reading and understanding God's Word. And assume that people's interest... Listen to this part in particular. They also assume that people's interests, like, and preferences matter at all in what God will use to bring people to Christ and what we should do in worship. Now, in fairness, people who think that way want to bring others to the church. The problem is that this exciting approach to church prioritizes worldly methods over the methods that God has promised to use. So so if we think about verses 
20 and 21, if we read them together, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So, Paul here, what he's doing, he listed several categories that were out of sync. Maybe perhaps had lost sight of the biblical teaching that God will add His strength to the methods that He commands us to do. Namely, in our case, the side of the incarnation, preaching Christ. Paul's questions here in these verses are are meant to contrast these types of of people with what God has promised to do in preaching. I mean, so that first question, where is the one who is wise, although that does condemn, at least convict, those who would try to outthink God in the secular arena, like the Greeks who loved their philosophers, that's definitely in view, but, but this also indicts those in the church who might assume that God's methods need to be updated for the modern world. But God's promises, think about that, God's promises do not become outdated. God has sworn that He would use the proclamation about Jesus Christ to save sinners. And so He will. Those who would add innovation to the church, whether well-intentioned or, or not, have forgotten that the salvation of sinners never rests on the worldly relevance of what we do. It, it never has, and it never will. People are saved because God adds His strength to the ordinary things He commands us to do. People are saved, always have been, always will be, because of what God does. And so we should do the things He tells us to do. This, this sort of strand of, of innovation assumes... I think that this, this is really important. It, it assumes that God can, on, can work only through things that would work without Him anyway. But that's not the truth, is it? It's not that God is limited to work through things that would work without His help. In, in fact, it's pretty clear from our text and from the history of the church, that God has proved Himself to be wiser than men in making Himself known in a saving way through things we would not expect to draw people to faith. We cannot assume that we are wiser or have become wiser than God by thinking the things the world finds exciting would be better at saving sinners than the things that God has commanded. So there's the problem of excitement, and now we want to think about the problem of ego. So Paul also asked in verse 20, 
Where is the scribe and where is the debater of this age? So, so scribes were, were essentially, so scribes were essentially scholars of the ancient world. And in this verse then, Paul calls into question the notion that the smartest people in the world are guaranteed to know the way to God. So, so this means that just because something is handed down to us from the halls of Oxford and Cambridge does not mean it's the truth, which most of you know anyway. But people do assume that academic pedigree means someone cannot be questioned. And that is just not the case. In fact, many of the people who fill our universities and spout rhetoric about who God must be if He exists, if they think He exists, are simply talking about the inventions of their own mind rather than the true God. They've refused to listen to what God has said about Himself in Scripture and even in creation in favor of what they wish God would be to satisfy their sinful desires. There are also, though, the, the debaters of this age. And I take that to mean those who debate this age. People who think that they can argue others into heaven. If I can just come up with a, a clever enough presentation, people will become convinced of the truth. Perhaps you might even know of Christians whose supposed ministries are composed almost entirely of debating other people. As if winning an argument advances the church. But we do know, don't we? That the gospel marches forward not through our victories in public or private debate, but on the proclamation of Jesus Christ as the Savior of all who would believe in Him. The fascination with the scholarly and with debate manifests a a trust in people and pedigree more than in God's power and what He's promised to use. And so, both excitement and ego show our tendency to try to invent our way to God, sometimes even in the church. So the application of this is that you have to be alert. All of us have to be alert for ways that we might buy the world's lies that something might be more useful than hearing the Gospel message. And so, I have to ask the difficult questions here at this point, don't I, that are never fun to ask, but Do you think things like we pray too much in our services? Do you think things like that we read too much Scripture? It just goes on. Do you wish we would preach for 10 instead of 30 minutes? Do you wish our songs were more about how we feel than 
the ones we use from God-inspired texts. And to pause, I mean, if, if we think that way, if we have even the inkling of thinking that way, we need to ask why. Do we think that God doesn't work unless our songs are cutting edge and make us feel the way that we would like to feel in church settings? Do you perhaps think that God can't help us hold our attention on His Word long enough to hear the whole of an exegetical sermon of reasonable length? We as Christians must watch for the ways that we start to question what God tells us to do. So the problems are that people pretend that they could be wiser than God. And that brings us to our third point, the preaching. So, we saw that God has promised, we have this promise from the Lord that He will use the proclamation about Christ to save sinners, even though preaching is not the method that the world would prefer we use. And we saw then that the church has to guard ourselves against thinking that we might be able to invent better ways to save people than what God has said to do. Now, however, we need to to think about the content of the preaching. So God not only applies or, or distributes salvation in these surprising and ordinary ways, he, he in fact accomplished salvation in a very surprising way. So verse 22 describes a problem that Paul knew, but that is not that unfamiliar to us either. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. In other words, people want experience and philosophy. They wanted God to save them in a way that coheres with their experience or with human reason. Which doesn't sound that foreign to what we hear today. And and here's the, the big payoff of the passage, isn't it? Instead of that, Verse 23, Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The most famous stories, right? They... They tell of a strong hero who by the strength of his body or the wits of their mind best their enemies to save the day. They they rely, in other words, on human accomplishment. But God tells us that He saved the day when a man was nailed to a cross in the backwaters of the Roman Empire. Whereas people long for the knight in glimmering armor who marches in splendid triumph, God has given a carpenter, stripped naked and tortured. 
And that is the scandal of the cross. But that is a scandal that we should treasure. Because, because as verse 25 says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Even if God had foolishness about Him, this is a slightly sarcastic point, even if God had foolishness, it's a better road to salvation to follow God's foolishness than anything that we might devise. Which should be comfort to you in two ways. It should be comfort to you as you try to evangelize people, as you try to share the gospel with people you know. It's so easy for us to feel like we have to have all the answers, doesn't it? If we just have that perfect explanation. And God says you just have to know what Christ did for you. If you would tell of Him, I will use that to bring people to salvation. So it should be comfort to you as you seek to see people know the Lord. And it should be comfort for you personally as a believer. Because everyone here who has ever done any wrong, it means we have offended God and we are the ones who should have been tortured. We are the ones who have violated God's law by breaking His commands, and we are the ones who should die in the most shameful of ways. But Christ endured that for us. Christ suffered the full force of God's wrath so that God would be good and just in not letting evil go unpunished. And Christ suffered the full force of God's wrath so that God would be good and just in forgiving unrighteous sinners. And so, we proclaim the message of the cross because it is our only source of hope. People expect a shining night in a sparkling castle and God gave us His own Son crucified on a tree. Reason, human reason would not invent that God, the eternal Son, took human nature to die for those who should die. That's not a human story. And perhaps you've noticed, though, that all my sermons end the same way. And that isn't because I lack creativity, although that may be true. But that's not why. It's because I don't have anything else worth saying. I have nothing but to announce Christ crucified. What more would we want to hear? In that message, God punches a hole in the world's darkness and offers hope to those who know they need rescue. We preach 
Christ crucified because it is the power of God unto salvation to know that our Savior gave Himself unto death so that we might live. He is the one who cleanses you of sin and guilt when we, by faith, would take shelter beneath the cross. And we give thanks and cling to that message. Let's pray. Father God, it's easy to think that there comes a point when we should advance beyond the gospel, when there is something more, uh, when there might be something new and more exciting of which to speak that may grow or mature the church better than simply talking about Christ. And we pray that you would protect us from that deception, that we would always long to hear of Christ crucified. That we would cherish that message. And that we would give ourselves over entirely to this unexpected way of seeing people become saved. Speaking of Christ crucified. It is folly to those who are perishing to talk of a Savior who died. But for those of us with eyes to see, we know that it is your wisdom to have crucified your Son in our place, to have sent Him to earn our place in heaven, and have said that if we would simply trust in Him, we would have eternal life. We pray we would cling to that message, that we would cherish it, and that we would be eager and enthusiastic to speak it because we preach Christ crucified. And it is that faith comes by hearing. So help us to speak of Christ. Help us to lean on Christ. And we pray these things for His sake. Amen.